Please be seated. Our text this morning is Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. If you're using one of our Pew Bibles, that's on page 976. And um, as you're turning there, let me just say again that we're in the middle of a series in the book of Ephesians. And the overall question that we're looking at week in, week out, are different angles on this question. What's it going to mean for us as a church, this particular church, to become more and more a community of grace? What's that going to look like for us? Um, We're dealing with a text this morning that might be familiar to many of you. Uh, And as many of you know, a couple weeks ago, my wife and family and I were on vacation, and we were in the mountains of North Carolina. And it was beautiful. And we're in this little mountain town. And we come into the town, and, and we're kind of walking through, seeing the shops. And I was desperately in need of a haircut. So there are two barber shops in town about a block from each other, and one of them was closed and one of them was open, so I knew which one to go to. So I went to the, went to the barbershop, and I'm, you've been in a barbershop, you know what it's like, and small town barbershop, there I am, and finally it's my turn, and I get up there, and a uh, guy who cuts my hair, kind, um, interesting, uh, older gentleman, it, would, it, would, it was great. We have this conversation, and he tells me he's been cutting hair there for 35 years, and asks if we have family in the area, and I said, no, we're just here on vacation visiting and he said, um, he said, you know, maybe I just don't. Well, I asked him, do you get a lot of uh, tourists here? And he said, yeah, we, we get a lot, and we're about to get a lot because of the, the leaves turning. And he said, you know, I, he said, I don't, maybe I just don't understand people very well, but I just don't know why people would come to a little small town like this. And I, I said, you know, you kind of see out the windows, I said, well, y'all do have some beautiful mountains. And he said, well, yeah, we do have those. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) Here we are running away to the mountains. Um, And it just struck me. I mean, how often can we be so so blind to the things we become very comfortable with? You could be in the middle of these glorious mountains and go, oh, oh, yeah, there are the mountains. And I feel like this text might be that way for some of us as we talk about what is so involved in what Jesus Christ has done for us, what stands at the heart of the gospel. For many of us, it's, oh, yeah, there's Jesus, right. Um, But I I would encourage us, just like this barber in uh, the mountains of North Carolina, that we would open our eyes to the glory that is all around us. So we're going to read together Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. And before we do, let's pray, because it's only the Lord who can open our eyes to this. Let's pray together. Father, we do come before you as needy people often blind, often with our senses dulled. For many of us, maybe these are familiar truths that we have not really let sink into the into our hearts anytime recently. For some of us, this might be new terrain. Whatever the case, we pray that you would open your word to us. That you would do the work by your spirit of changing us. We pray that you would do this for our good and for your glory. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. <clears throat> and you were dead in the trespasses and the sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. 
By grace you have been saved. And you raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We're going to talk about two things today. Really, we're going to talk about 19 things, but they're under two different headings. Um, We're going to talk about what does this passage teach us about um, the condition, the reality of life for those who are outside of Christ. And what does this passage teach us about the reality of life that is to be found in Christ? Those two things. Uh, At the very beginning of this series, I recommended to you a commentary by John Stott on the book of Ephesians. And if you're following along in that, you'll recognize that he's been very helpful to me this week. So I'd like to give credit where it's due. But we're going to talk about, first, the condition, the situation of people who are those outside of Christ, verses 1 through 3. And Paul tells us, that they were that three things describe life outside of Christ. Verse 1, he says that people are dead. And he's going to go on and talk about how we are enslaved and we are under wrath. Those three things, dead, enslaved, under wrath. Verse 1, and you are dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Paul comes, begins this passage with this jarring statement. He says, this is true for everyone, that you are dead in your transgressions and sins. Now, those two words, trespasses and sins, um, it's seen together, it takes into account everything. Okay, one way of saying this is sins of commission and sins of omission. Both the things that we do that stray away from God and the, the things that we neglect to do that God calls us to do. As John Stott says, before God, we are both failures and rebels. And he's making an absolute statement. Um, maybe you've heard this illustration before that, um, that, if, that when, you're, when you're lost in your sin, when God finds you, you're like a person drowning in the sea without hope. You're drowning. And then a more reformed person will step in and say, no, you're not drowning. That you are, You're actually dead at the bottom of the sea. You can't even reach out for the life preserver. And that's not a bad picture of what Paul is saying right here. You were dead in your transgressions. Not you were desperate, not you were terminally ill. You were dead. You were unresponsive. You were cold. There was no hope. He says, you, this is the, he says, this is the spiritual situation of everyone in the world and everyone outside of Christ. He says, you, that you're dead. And he goes on. He says, second thing, he says that we are enslaved. Look at verse 2. Talks about being dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of, and here are the three slaveries. He talks about slavery. I'm going to use the um, terms of Christians since the Middle Ages that we're enslaved to the world, the flesh, and the devil. Okay, those three things have their grip on us. Verse 2, the world. He says, the course of this world. What's he talking about? He's talking about the structures of a world that are turned against God. He says, we're in the middle of the atmosphere of a world that runs in the opposite direction of God. He says that we're right there with them. 
that we're walking along the path of this world, that we're following the course of the world. Again, John Stott, says this, wherever human beings are being dehumanized by political oppression or bureaucratic tyranny, by an outlook that is secular, amoral or materialistic, by poverty, hunger, unemployment, by racial discrimination, by any form of injustice, there we can detect the subhuman values of this age and this world. You see, in our very culture, every culture is going in the opposite direction of God to the degree to which it does not recognize God and His place in the universe, to the degree to which it doesn't recognize the work of Jesus on our behalf. Now, that can look like some of the things that John Stott mentions, very um, obvious um, in public view kinds of oppressions, bureaucratic tyranny, um, hunger, unemployment. It can look like very extreme things. Some of you may be familiar with a, a ministry called International Justice Mission. An International Justice Mission is a group of Christians, um, Christian lawyers largely, who are at work in other countries trying to work within the political structures, the governments of those countries, to stop injustice wherever it's happening. And they've had great success um, doing things to help disrupt the um, sex trade in Asia. Okay? If you're familiar with their ministry, you've maybe read some of the stories about the ways they have started in places to break the back of the, that great injustice. And this is what Paul is talking about, a world that goes in the opposite direction of God, where things like that even happen. But it's also a, a world that goes against God in much more subtle ways. Um, let's take the American dream. What is it that we're dreaming about? What is it that we're seeking to follow? What is it that we want to see happen in our lives? And maybe are the very dreams that we're seeking after just part and parcel with a world that's trying to define itself without God. So let me just ask you this. What are you dreaming for yourself? What are you dreaming for your kids? Could it be that in some ways that's a dream with, without God? Maybe just an excuse to live life for ourselves. Or it could be for many of us just much more subtle than that. Lives where we certainly want to be God to be a part of it, but he's our great cosmic bellhop. How can we take the American dream and fit God into it? How can he now become the one who gives us all the things that we've so dreamed of? Now, that could be a lot of things for us, but my question is just, are the things that we're following or the things that we're dreaming about, are they in line with what God gives us in the Bible and what he points us to, or are they in taking us in directions that maybe go radically different from that? Um, my wife and I, when we were in Philadelphia, we were part of a church plant down in the city, and the uh, the man who was the pastor of that was an old friend of ours from college, and he was uh, a pastor at a church in the suburbs, and he decided to plant this church in the city. And people came to him and said, aren't you scared to take your children down into the city with all that that's going to expose them to? And he said, yeah, but I'm more scared to leave my kids in the suburbs and all that that brings before their eyes, all the values that that assaults them with. I think what Paul's bringing out, whatever, um, whatever the world might be pointing towards us towards, whether it's extreme or whether it's very, very subtle, we live in a world that points us away from our God. Okay? And he says we're actually enslaved to that, the world, now the flesh, verse 3. Uh, when you see the word flesh in the New Testament, it can mean a variety of different things. It can mean your physical body, which it occasionally does, but you, typically when Paul uses the word flesh, it means something a little different than that. It means all that's wrapped up in a life 
that's lived for self, that's lived away from God. Sinclair Ferguson defines flesh this way. It's the atmosphere in which we live, the air we breathe in and out, the fundamental alienated from God disposition of our inner being. The flesh is life turned in on itself without having the resources on which to live as we intended for the glory of God. Paul goes on to say that, we're, that we've been carrying out the desires of our body and our mind. A person's whole being, everything about us, everything about our disposition, turned away from God and turned towards ourselves. And again, that can be two extremes and everything in between. It could be the, the profligate and the extreme. When we see Jesus in the Gospels, he's criticized time and again for the people that he spends time with. Tax collectors and prostitutes. He goes to their parties. He spends time with them because he knows that they are in need of the grace of God. But it can also look refined and dignified. Jesus also came after the religious elites, the Pharisees, the Sadducees. What does that mean for us? Um, the people with great religious pedigree, the, the educated, the independent. A self turned against God could be very obvious and it can be very subtle, but both of those, he say, actually enslave us, the world, the flesh. And then he comes to the devil. This is in verse 2. Paul's assumption, and the assumption of all of Scripture, is that there really is real and personal evil in the universe that the devil really does exist. Some of you I know have read C.S. Lewis's book, The Screwtape Letters. In the middle of Screwtape Letters, if you're not familiar with it, it's, it there are letters from a, uh, a senior tempter devil to his, uh, to his protege, and he's giving him tips on tempting this human being that he's been assigned to. And he says, people um, over the course of time, they fall into one extreme or another in thinking about us and thinking about the devil and thinking about devilish powers. He says, in some ages, people are completely consumed with the idea of us. We get them off the rails because every time they look, they see a demon leaping out from under a rock. He says, that's one way that we can derail people is to have them be utterly consumed with us. But he said the other way is, in other ages, people don't believe in us at all. They completely dismiss even the possibility of anything spiritual or certainly anything spiritually evil. And the tempter says to his protege, he says, either one of those is fine. It doesn't matter. We're not trying to turn everybody into outward Satanists. What are we trying to do? We're trying to turn everybody against God. And if that comes from very obvious things or just a very subtle discounting of anything spiritual, then either one is just fine with us. He goes on to call the devil. He says in verse chapter 2 that we were um, following the course of the world, following the, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. These titles, these descriptions he gives of the devil. It's interesting he says that he's at work in the sons of disobedience. That he's really actually at work in the world and in people's lives. Now this verse is not saying that everybody's actually possessed, as you might think of possession. But it does say that Satan holds sway in the world and that he really does influence people, that there really is real and actual tangible personal evil um, at work against all that is good. The world, the flesh, and the devil. All three of these, he say, Paul says, people are enslaved. Let me read a few verses for you from uh, John chapter 8. This is verses 31 through 34. Jesus in a conversation with some people who come to him. 
Verse 31, Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word and you are truly my disciples, then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And they answered him, We are the offspring of Abraham. We've never been enslaved to anyone. How can you say you will become free? And Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. All these things Paul says, the world, the flesh, the devil, they have us enslaved. They have us in bondage. When I was a kid, I grew up in Nashville, Tennessee, um, and among many things that Nashville is known for, if you've ever been there, um, there used to be this theme park called Opryland. I know some of you have been to Opryland. I went to Opryland a lot. There was a ride in Opryland called the Tin Lizzies. Okay? And that's a nickname for the old Ford Model T. And it was great because as a 10-year-old kid, you get in these little Model Ts and you get to steer them along this course and you get to drive these cars. And at 10 years old, you're like, this is the greatest thing in the world. I, I push my foot. There's only one pedal. There's a gas pedal. And you push on that and you go about two and a half miles an hour. But you just, you just think, what great freedom. Now, here's the thing about the ride, though kind of winds through the woods and it's on this old concrete road, but in the middle of the road is, um, is, a, is a metal barrier about six or eight inches high that runs the whole course. And what that does is, if you as a 10-year-old kid start to get too far off course, it catches your wheel and, and pulls you back around. And there's no reverse in the Tin Lizzie, at least the ones at Opryland. So what happens is, the most you can do is you can take your foot off the brake and it brings it to a stop. But then the person behind you, probably your sibling, is just going to ram into you with all that two and a half miles an hour that they have you know, powering them, and they're going to push you along. And the thing about it is, when you're 10 years old at Opryland, you have this sense of freedom. I'm driving a car. But you're not free. You can turn the wheel back and forth. There's this thing down the middle of the road that always keeps you on a particular course. I can stop. Yeah, but my sister's going to run into me and bump me from behind. You're being propelled forward. And I think what Paul is saying, that all these things that enslave us, they don't look like slavery. They don't feel like it, maybe, for many of us often. But what's he saying? You're being compelled along a certain course, going in a certain direction. And that direction is a direction that takes you actually further and further away from God. Let me give you um, just a thought as far as the way this sort of slavery works in our lives. Are there things in your life that you love and are loving, but you never seem able to get quite enough? Now, that could be, again, in some big highlighted ways. Um, Pornography has this sort of effect on people. When you first get ensnared in it, it... It doesn't take much, but then what you find is your senses become dulled, and it takes more and more and more, and it becomes harder and harder to turn away. And that's one example. What about the approval of other people? Oftentimes, it's just so encouraging to get the approving word for somebody. You know how addictive that can become. Suddenly, you find yourself, everything I'm doing is to earn and to guarantee the approval of the people around me. Maybe it seems innocent, maybe it seems small to begin with, but what happens over time you find, I'm actually enslaved to this. And that can be all kinds of things in our lives. What are the things 
that tend to bring us under slavery. Now, the third thing that Paul says is not only are we dead, not only are we in slavery, he says we're under wrath. Verse 3. And he says it about as starkly as he possibly could. He says that we are by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. He says everybody is in this boat. This isn't something particular about a certain group of people. It doesn't just have to do with first century Roman culture. He says all cultures, all time, everyone in the world, ever since the fall, that we are children of wrath. Whatever your socioeconomic group, whatever your level of education. Now, for some of us, that might stop us right there because wrath seems like it's surely beneath the goodness and the dignity of God. If I'm going to believe in a God, if there's a God who really exists, surely he can't be a God of wrath. Let me just point out and clear up at least two misconceptions. I don't want you to think that for at least these two reasons. Children of wrath, graphic picture. He's not picturing toddlers. What's he saying? We are all children of our parents. Okay, Full-grown adult children. He says we are all in the family of wrath. The other thing is, when we picture wrath, oftentimes what we picture is this irrational flare-up of anger, instability, something you can't predict, something that you're scared to be near. Well, what is wrath in God? It's simply this. It's God's settled opposition to all evil. God's wrath is not unpredictable. It's entirely predictable. God always responds in wrath to evil. Again, John Stott, he says, wrath is God's personal, righteous, constant hostility to evil, his settled refusal to compromise with it, his resolve instead to condemn it. That implies that it is personal. It's not some abstract force. Now, here's why it matters. Certainly because Scripture tells us it's true, but it bears on our life also for this reason, because without it, there's no, there's no real hope really for any of the things that you care about. Because if God isn't wrathful towards all evil, if he isn't wrathful towards sin, then you realize what that means. At the end of the day, God doesn't care about all the injustice, about all the wrong, about all the things that we see so blatantly fractured around us. It says at the end of the day, God might wish it weren't true, but it doesn't, it doesn't carry weight for him. Now, when you look at evil in your life, when you look at it on the world stage, when you look at it in community, when you maybe even look at it ways you've been victims of it in your own life, you know that, you know that evil has to be answered. And the promise of the Bible is that God does answer evil. It doesn't, it's not ignored by him. It's not pushed aside, but it's dealt with. Now, of course, here's the rub. Here's the truth that maybe we is really uncomfortable for us to look at. If God is wrathful for all that's turned against him, and if we're wrapped up in a world, in the grip of the world, the flesh, the devil, then humanity itself is under God's wrath, that we are under God's wrath. Now, come to the end of verse 30, and it is a bleak diagnosis. And I hope it feels that way, because Paul certainly meant for us to hear it that way. Uh, some of you might actually remember back in the 50s, there was a TV show called This Is Your Life. And uh, what they do is they'd go and round up, I think mainly celebrities, and they'd haul them into the studio, and then they would bring forth all these 
significant people in their life to tell stories about them. And, you know, this is on your life. This is your life on display, on parade for the world. And it's usually a good and happy thing. What does Paul say? For all of us, he says, this is your life. This picture that I have just painted, this is everybody's life at one time. And if you're not following Jesus, if you're not somebody following Jesus, Paul says, this is still your life. Okay, now, the situation of people who are not following Jesus, what what does Paul go on to say, verses 4 through 10, about the situation of people, the condition of those who are, as Paul would say, in Christ? Verse 4, we come to one of the greatest buts in the Bible. But God, what does he say? He paints this terrible, dark picture, and he says, but God but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. He goes on to tell us about three things that God has done for us. He tells us that he made us alive with Christ, that he raised us with Christ, and that he seated us with Christ in the heavenly places. This is verses 4 through 6. Verses 4 and 5, God made us alive together with Christ. He talks about God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. When? Even when we were dead in our transgressions, our trespasses, he made us alive with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. What's our hope? Not that God is not a God of wrath, but that his wrath is not the end of the story for us. Our hope is not that God would ignore our sin and our alienation, but that he would forgive it, that he would rescue us, that he would meet us in the middle of our need, that God would take people, as he said at the very beginning, who are spiritually dead, And what does he say here? But you in Christ have been made alive with Christ. You were dead and you've been brought back to life. Verse 5, he says that we've been raised up with Christ. The promise that death doesn't have the last word. Just as God raised Jesus from the dead, so too he raised us up from the power and dominion of death even now. He says right now we have been spiritually raised with Christ. That brings with it the promise that one day Our physical bodies are going to be raised just as Jesus was as well. We've been raised with Christ. Then he says that we are seated with Christ in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Not only are we raised with him, but we're seated with him. Where is Christ? At the right hand of the Father. Now if you were here for last week in in the passage immediately preceding this, Paul kicks all this off by saying, by talking in verse 19 of chapter 1 about the immeasurably great power of God for those who believe. And then he goes on and talks about what God did in Jesus to display his power, raised him from the dead, seated him at the Father's right hand. And now Paul here says, let me tell you about a further demonstration of God's power at work in your life. Just what he did with Jesus, he did the same thing with us in Christ. If you're somebody who's put your faith in Jesus, you are raised with him. You are seated with him. That There is something spiritually true about your life now that is utterly different than your life before. You've been brought to life in a way that you've never known life before. Going back to chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. All of the blessings of the heavenly places. What is he saying? We've been united with Christ. Everything that is true of Him, saved, resurrected, in power. He says we are spiritually united with that. And He says one day our bodies are going to be as well. And everything's going to fit the way it's meant to fit. 
Paul's refrain time and again is that we are in Christ. Okay, not simply that the record of our sin has been wiped away, though certainly that's true, but it's so much more. He says, life now, united with Christ. It's Paul's favorite description. He says that our whole lives are now bound together with Jesus, inseparable from Him. So that Jesus didn't just come to offer us good advice, good moral direction. He came that we might have an entirely new existence. He says once we were dead, we were separated from God. We were enslaved to the world, the flesh, the devil, under God's wrath. And now, he says, we are in Christ. We're brought into the very heart of the relationship between the Father and the Son. We're given real life that never wears out, never ends. We're given intimacy with God that we taste now and that we're going to know in its fullness. What does he say? He says, our salvation is an in-Christ salvation. It's intimately bound up with our Savior. Now, here's a very um, distant reflection of that. For those of you who are fans of David Letterman, 1984, David Letterman has as a guest on his show the man who invented Velcro. They talk about all the glories of Velcro. And then what does he do? David Letterman is dressed in a Velcro suit and there's a Velcro wall in the back of the studio and a little trampoline. And he comes running, he jumps on the trampoline and he slams himself into the wall about three feet up and he's stuck. And he can't come down. He's been Velcroed to the wall. We, brothers and sisters, have been Velcroed to Jesus. Now, I hope that doesn't sound too trite. But maybe that's just, but seriously, maybe that is just a shadow of the image of what does it mean that we are in Christ, that we are brought close. Now, he's not in Velcro, David Letterman. He's Velcro. We are in Christ. It's even closer than that. It's inseparable. We are stuck to him. What does Jesus say? If you're someone I brought into my family, if you're someone who's put your faith in me, you are inseparably bound up with me. And that was true of what first brought you to faith, and that is what is true of every day of your life after that. Back to, Roman, or back to Ephesians 1.19, the immeasurably great power towards us who believe. We've seen that power, Paul says, in what was done for you, you were brought into Christ. And he reminds us of that because he says, that same power that brought you into Jesus is the same power that holds you in Jesus. He reminds us of that power to say, what is there in this world that the world can throw against you, that your own conscience can throw against you, that can happen to you, that you can struggle with, that could possibly be stronger than the bond with which I have sealed you to my son? It's as if you are in Christ, you are inseparably bound up with him. That's what he did. Here's why he did it. Verse 7. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. What's he saying? For believers that you are going to be an eternal display of the immeasurable riches of God's grace. For all of eternity you are going to shine as one on whom God has displayed his grace. You're going to be a lamp post radiating this forever. You're going to be showing the universe the goodness and the depth of God's grace. He's rescued us from slavery to the world, the flesh, and the devil. And he goes further, he says, not only did I take you out of that, I'm going to turn you into a beacon, a signpost, 
a glorious trophy of my grace that's going to shine for eternity. That's what God's doing with our lives. What did he do? Why did he do it? Third thing under this section, how do we receive it? Verses 8 through 10. Paul says that we are saved by by grace through faith. We're saved by the goodness of God through faith. Faith is, is the thing that attaches us to God's goodness to us. It's the rope that holds us there. It's the open hand that receives what God gives us. Maybe you've heard a variety of different metaphors. What is faith? But I think we need to remember the picture in verse 1 that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. How do dead people receive anything? Well, they can't. Not without being made alive, without being brought back to life. Paul's answer in the second half of verse 8, this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Now, maybe you've heard it spoken of this way, the this in 8b, eight, verse 8, half, second half b, sorry. Um, this is often taken to mean faith, right? Faith is a gift of God. Now, that's certainly true. If you've ever studied a language where nouns and pronouns have to agree, um, in the Greek, faith is a uh, feminine noun, and this is a neuter pronoun, okay? And I think what's going on here is that Paul is pointing back to the whole thing. It is all a gift of God. Your faith is a gift of God. Grace is a gift of God. The whole experience of being brought to new life, all of this is pure, 100%. It's gift. It's something that's given to you. It's not something you earn. It's not something you accomplish. In Paul's words, it's not a result of works. It's not of your own doing, verse 9 so that no one can boast. It goes on in verse 10. He says, We are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, that God prepared in it, that we should prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Everything about our salvation is Christ's work. And Paul does mention work here. What does he say? Not that your work has saved you, but that God has saved you for good works. Of course good works matter. What's he saying? You've been saved into a whole new life of living along the purposes of God. You haven't been saved by your works. You've been saved to these things that God calls us to. And you can only receive them. Jesus said it this way. What does it mean to come to Him? He said, repent and believe. Okay, what does that mean? It means a turn. It means a transfer of allegiance. In Acts chapter 2, Peter is preaching to an enormous crowd, the first Christian sermon. And he says... Uh, quoting the Old Testament prophet Joel, he says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Faith responds to the offer of the gospel. Now going back to John chapter 8, which we quoted earlier, talking about these people who say, we've never been enslaved, and Jesus says, um, you know, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Jesus goes on and says, um, if the Son sets you free, then you, will be in, then you will be free indeed. What's he saying? Come to faith in me, and you will be for the first time set free. You will know real free, freedom. So what are the implications of this? If you are not somebody who's following Jesus, then listen to the call of Jesus. Do what he says to do, which is repent and believe. Everything that Paul says in verses 1 through 3, is true of you. He leaves it there for us in all its weight. 
That also doesn't have to be the end of the story. Do what Jesus calls us to do. Repent. Turn. Believe. Come to the Jesus who is offered to us in this very passage. Now, if you are somebody who is following Jesus, Jesus, then this is what God has done for you. Again, it takes us all the way back to chapter 1, verse 19, the immeasurably great power of God for all for us who believe. We see it demonstrated here. That is the power that's at work in your life, that's at rest on you. Is there anything that you can't entrust to him? Is there any situation in your life where he can't meet you, where he can't care for those of us who are in Christ, intimately bound up with him. And if you're at a point in your life where you find yourself looking back and looking away, my family and I, we watch a lot of Veggie Tales right now. If you're not familiar with Veggie Tales, cartoon vegetables telling the stories of the Bible. And we're particular fans of Josh and the Big Wall, talking about Joshua as he's leading his people into the Promised Land. And if you remember from the Bible, as God's people stand uh, at the verge of going into the promised land, there's all this murmuring. There's all this dissent. We don't think God's going to meet us. We don't think he's going to be faithful to us. We should turn around and go back. In VeggieTales, one of the characters says, he talks about Egypt. He says, remember how great Egypt was. Three square meals a day, plenty of exercise, and... This little, this little squash with a bad southern accent turns to him and says, but we were in slavery. Here they are on the verge of stepping into the promised land, thinking about going back to the death they came out of. He says, we were in slavery. If you are somebody following Jesus, if you're somebody in Christ, be careful if you're looking back. Be careful if you're looking away longingly. See things for what they were, for what they are. You were in slavery. The world, the flesh, and the devil binding us to itself. What does Jesus say? I came that you might really be free. Now going back to our bar, or my barber in the mountains. We live in the mountains. Look up. Look around. See the beauty of that. If you're someone who's been living in the mountains for a long time, rub the fog out of your eyes. See the glory of what God has brought us into. This might be new terrain for some of us. Look around. See the glory of the place that God has brought us. You live in the mountains. You live in Christ. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, we do daily need you to open our eyes to the mountains that surround us, the mountains of your grace the mountains of your beautiful work in raising Jesus from the dead, of freeing us from our sins, of bringing us into true and real and deep life. And we pray that constantly you would awaken us to the reality of that. May it play out in great gratitude and great humility and a great passion to make your name known in our world. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.